Hi, and welcome to the Insiders by Durham Lane, where we get perspectives from industry thought leaders about strategies that are unifying marketing and sales cycles to help accelerate growth inside your world. Simon and I were delighted to be joined for this episode of the Insiders by Simon Ball. Market Director at Equans, a leading organisation delivering technical, FM, regeneration and energy services. Despite working in a heavily commoditised marketplace, Simon relies on a highly nuanced and patient approach when it comes to winning new customers. Listen on to hear Simon's views on being a disruptor and an enabler, the power of personalisation and how success in sales is nearly always a team pursuit. Hope you enjoy this episode of The Insiders from Durham Lane. Hello and welcome to The Insiders by Durham Lane, an industry podcast giving you the inside track on all things B2B sales and marketing. I'm your host, Simon Hazeldean. I'm an author, sales expert and a keynote speaker on all things sales and negotiation. I'm joined by my co-host, the CCO and co-founder of Durham Lane, Richard Lane. Richard, great to be back with you for another Insiders episode. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about Durham Lane before you introduce our guest? Hi Simon, thank you and yep, great to be back in the Insiders studio. Well just very quickly, Durham Lane, we're an integrated sales and marketing agency. Uh, We're in the business of helping our customers create always-on channels of meaningful and well-qualified sales opportunities that business development teams love to close. And today we're thrilled to be joined by Simon Ball. Simon is Market Director for Equans. So Simon, welcome. Really pleased to have you with us. This is a bit confusing, but I'm going to now hand back to Simon, um, who's going to get us started. (laughs) It's a demographic thing. Simons are dying out, so I understand there will be a few of us in the future, but for the moment there's many of us, so I celebrate the Simon. Firstly, Simon, great to have you with us, and Simon, handing back to you. Yeah, Simon Insiders, Simon. So, uh, Simon, welcome to the Insiders. First question, what we like to to ask all of our guests is just to give us a little bit of background, how you came to be in the role you're in currently, so that our listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit. Yeah, no problem at all. My current role is uh, market director, and uh, it's an important distinction because marketing would be a slightly different role. By market, we mean um, all of the market sectors that we're targeting as a business. So there are certain key markets that are a priority for us, some perhaps less so um, for all sorts of reasons. And I'm responsible essentially for having early client engagement with clients in those targeted markets. The role that I got, which I started about four and a half years ago here, came out of the back of about 20 years of sales in the facilities management sector. I guess in terms of my background, I actually started in 1996 as a researcher. I was doing a PhD in uh, facilities management. I'd spent a lot of time at university and thought that might be a career that I might want to have. But what that did expose me to was lots and lots of businesses, actually. Funnily enough, we had what we called associate companies who were looking for market research and support and understanding for this burgeoning new profession that, that we called facilities management, which is something that I've worked in now since since 96 to the present present day pretty much consistently throughout. So what that did expose me to was an enormous amount of networking and some really key individuals who shaped this profession, this industry that I now work in, which obviously led to connections, which led to job opportunities and, and so on and so forth. So I wasn't a natural academic. 
I'll put it that way. I was far more interested in um, writing publications that we could sell and make money or undertaking research that companies were paying us to do. And that was somewhat at odds with your traditional academic university environment, I think it's fair to say. But it was a great learning point and it's something that I've kept with me throughout right up to now in my current role where we undertake research in the market sectors that we do operate in. We'd like to take a fully informed approach before we go and meet any customer. Um, So again, that's something that I've kind of brought forward right to the present day. I'm very impressed. I wouldn't describe my time at university as being a natural academic, but I was more distracted by socialising and beer, Simon, I have to say. so. That was part and parcel of it. I could say I did a four-year degree course. That was my first degree. Then I did an MSc. That was a year. So I'd spent five years. Then I did another year, which was the first year of a PhD, which is an MPhil, Master in Philosophy. And um, so there was a career path there for sure. The distractions were all too evident in terms of the commercial opportunities that were available at the time. And uh, and lots of social distractions, of course. I did enjoy that. Fantastic. And um, as a business, you provide your services into multiple sectors, as many of the listeners to the Insiders podcast do, you know, manufacturing, corporate, public sector, etc. How do you approach those different sectors from a sales and marketing point of view? Yeah, well, I should probably just explain just a little bit just generally about facilities management and the, and the sector that we largely operate in. If you've ever walked through uh, a London Underground station, we sit behind the scenes maintaining those facilities. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of other clients for whom uh, we provide those back-of-house services. As a brand, we're well-known, I think, or becoming better known within the industry they operate in, but but not well-known in the public space. In fact, very few, I would say, facilities management companies are particularly well-known in the public space, despite the fact that we, we're a £120 billion marketplace within the UK alone and um, have global reach and are pretty well established. Our position within the market, we're, we're keen to offer something slightly different, which is perhaps a less commoditized view in terms of um, the services that we deliver and the, and the value that we can add to core businesses. Because although the work we do is largely behind the scenes, back of house, we might call it, it does have an impact on that front of house position. It can have an impact on the core client's business, particularly these days with regards to sustainability, the drive to net zero, the challenge around cost, of course, which is all pervasive, particularly in the last year or so. So the work that we do is, is an integral one. It's a real added value point. And I would say as an industry, we're an investment, not a cost to any business. And um, it's an important message to get across because quite often we're, we're fighting against um, the lowest cost, slightly commoditized view of service. Um, and, and again, that's not something that we as a business want to want to operate in. So how would you, for example, articulate added value to say the justice sector with, with uh, the courts versus, um, you know, a, a a large manufacturer. They're surprisingly similar in some ways, but also different in many other key areas. I would say the one big thing that's happened in the last few years has been the rise of digitalization. So if you operate a a court service, uh, more and more of that work can now be done online, just like we're having this conversation via Teams. That takes pressure off a very aging property estate. There is also a large challenge around ensuring that that estate is is low carbon and, um, and is reducing its energy exposure. 
in energy expenditures. So that challenge is magnified in, in manufacturing as well, where they are huge users of energy. Some of the biggest users of energy in the UK are manufacturers. You can't just turn off a manufacturing process to save some money. So you have to think around the edges of, well, what can we do in terms of making every element of what we deliver as efficient as possible? Really, where it begins for us is understanding the customer and their motivation. So you could be a, a, a large refiner of raw food products and your biggest concern is gas expenditure, how much they're spending on gas. So we as a, as a business that has its DNA in energy and, and, um, and carbon is able to look at the estate and go, well, actually, maybe there's some parts of the estate that could be electrified and, and things that we could bring forward. Or maybe even a bigger challenge around, okay, if you're going to get out of gas in the future and you're going to turn to hydrogen and you're going to turn to other technologies, maybe there's added value we can support with on top of the core services that we deliver for you. I was having a look at your LinkedIn profile and you mentioned that you like, I'm quoting here from your profile, disrupting old established models and challenging the status quo, which sounded very intriguing. So uh, <laughs> let us know a little bit more by uh, kind of what you mean by that. This is probably the area of the recording where you'll need to cut it out because it's <laughs> probably going to cause too much trouble. No, no. I think it stems from my time at university, really, because I was working in a in an environment which was very staid in its approach and its process. And this is the way you will do things. I rail against that. You know, I, I look at the world that's around us and go, well, we're changing. You know, we've got more young people now, more Gen Z in the workplace than we do my generation and they have different needs and demands and challenges and so why should we do things the same way we've always done things and I think as an industry the industry that we operate in it's based around obviously compliance with certain procedures it's based around a model which hasn't really changed massively in the last 30 years so technology being a good example whilst if you go to any manufacturer for the last 20 years they've been remote monitoring their equipment remote monitoring in buildings is something that's still fairly in its infancy and essentially, I want to move towards a world which is a little bit more agile, a little bit more flexible, move away from a textbook telling you this is what you do step by step towards an environment. And I can see this happening in the future. But it hasn't happened yet of buildings and property telling you when they need servicing, telling you when they need support and changing the service that we deliver around that. This industry is built around certain key things which have never really been massively challenged, I think, in the last 30 years or so. Technology is an amazing enabler, but it's also an amazing transformative tool. It's starting to happen. It's not happening massively, but it is starting to happen now, which is quite exciting. It's like a pivot point that we've gotten to. So yeah, by disrupting the status quo, you know, I like sitting in front of clients and saying, why do you want this? Why do you want it this way? You know, why, why are you prepared to pay for this in that manner when actually there's an alternative which could be maybe a bit more unknown, may mean taking a bit more of a risk on a technology or a, an approach or a commercial model that's a little different to the norm. But actually, if you do that, it, it might be more materially beneficial to your core business, particularly as we move towards this, this environment of AI. I think that's a very exciting development, um, artificial intelligence and how it can be applied. Um, not just from a sales and marketing point of view, by the way, because I've had some interesting debates just this week about how AI can be used to write a bid document, for example, or query a, a commercial set of terms and conditions, which must be very worrying for anyone involved in that. But I see it as a massive opportunity and a massive disruptor in, in a fairly well-established marketplace. Yeah, I've been seeing an awful lot of um, traffic amongst one particular network I'm involved in where the copywriters are looking at chat GTP and will, will AI remove us from the 
entire process, which I think is a it's going to be fascinating to see how that technology you know emerges and and and, and affects us. And uh, you you mentioned previously around you're often competing against you know lower price, more commoditized service offering, yeah. and um, and also in our pre-interview you were, you were just describing that facilities management is often perceived that way as a, a highly commoditized service. I guess a lot of organisations companies are struggling with that. I'd be interested how you are dealing with that challenge so that you you know right from the start i suppose of your customer interaction all the way through yeah no uh, it is always a danger i mean nobody in this marketplace that we operate in has more than about three or four percent of the market so and you know as a result there's a, a huge amount of competition which obviously puts pressure on price and price becomes a massive driver people will tell you that price is the number one driver in this marketplace i don't know that i really genuinely believe that i think you know, there's certainly been plenty of instances where we've won work and we weren't necessarily the lowest price. I think a customer will will feel a degree of trust and that will lead to a, a thought process around buying your services because they feel trust in the people that you've put in front of them. So I guess my job in sales in this and, and to avoid that kind of trap of commoditization is to get to know our customers as well as we possibly can. Ideally, way ahead of any formal procurement arrangement. Procurement have a bit of a bad rap. As salespeople, have, I've had a lot of closed doors in their faces from procurement people, and I get that. But in, in many ways, they are also the, the door openers. And I think if, if there is a willingness within a client to engage and challenge and question the way that things have been done up to that point, if there's a, a willingness to drive towards a zero carbon economy, that's interesting to us because we're very strong in that area. If what they're dealing with is highly critical and very risky, again, that's interesting to us as a business. So these key metrics, if you like, come out of conversations that we have with customers way ahead of that formal process. And as I say, it's either through a procurement lead or it's through a consultant who may act as a sort of third party. Say they might act on a part of the customer and say, oh, what's going on in the market? What's interesting? Who would you recommend we talk to? Or it might be the customer themselves going, you know what? I'm new in this role. This is a new thing that I'm taking responsibility for. I've got a fairly open mind. I think there might be a better way of doing things. Then we're prepared to have those conversations, even if nothing happens at the end of it. You know, I've spent two years speaking with a customer currently. I don't think it's going to come to the market as a proposition that we could bid for any time in the next two years. But we're happy to have those conversations because when these things come to the market, when they are competitively being bid, we have to make the decision on whether we want to bid them or not. And if we've had that conversation with the customer, they know us. They know what we're offering. We know a bit about them. We've got a solution that we think is a good fit, sets us apart from our competitors. Then that's going to get far more traction internally, far more support. And I would say one thing to bear in mind about the industry that we work in, the bid process and the eventual selection of a winning bid can take anything up to a year or more. So obviously that's a significant investment from our point of view. We don't have infinite resources. So that selection point right up front is absolutely critical in identifying those customers who don't want to buy commodity. Yeah, I'd like to um, I'd like to return to that point in a moment, but I'd be interested, Richard, in terms of you obviously work on behalf, represent, you know, a number of clients. What's Durham Lane's philosophy approach to that commoditization differentiation challenge? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting listening to Simon talk about that. I've just made a note, you know, highly tailored approach in a highly commoditized marketplace. Our mantra number one is business fit, business value. So 
our goal whenever approaching any prospect on our behalf of our customers is to be talking value and to be talking fit and to being different. And uh, we coach and teach our staff to think and to think differently. That's that's one of the things that one of our sort of core tenants is we want people to be thinking, but we also want you to be thinking differently. And a, a lot of what Simon's talked about so far on this session has been about trying to bring a new angle to a common conversation. You know, you've also really talked about qualification there, Simon, at the end, didn't you, in terms of if it's all about the price and the price being the lowest, then that's not for you. And therefore, go and spend your time where you can be more successful. Yeah, quite right. We want to put the odds in our favour. And Simon, I'd be interested in that. What approach do you take to, to determining which potential clients you're going to focus your marketing and sales office i mean i understand that if they just say hi simon we're looking for the lowest cost provider that's a fairly easy decision but but a lot of others are going to be a little i guess much more complicated than that it might be or it might not with such long sales cycles you might start off in a very value-based conversation and then with personnel changes it could become highly commoditized so be interested in how that plays through absolutely Absolutely. I'm afraid that is true. And you can start having fabulous conversations with people who are incredibly engaged, incredibly excited and uh, want to do something different. And then lo and behold, I mean, it all gets very, very serious and it, it, and they bring in procurement and they bring in consultants. Suddenly, uh, it, what they brought to the market isn't exactly what you were hoping for. So we do have a way of sort of measuring that um, and monitoring that over a period of time, quite long periods of time. That level of engagement, that level of relationship is really critical. So it's important for us to have multiple engagement points with the client at multiple levels to try and avoid that trap, if you like, of then being told one thing by one person and then suddenly it all falls apart. And the depth of that engagement, you know, so we will often um, um, have workshops with these clients. We'll have in-depth engagement with multiple partners. We will bring our guys into the room and we'll have conversations, open and honest conversations with them, none of which is a sales pitch. It's all about trying to understand them better. And you know what? If they go down that route of, you know, we're going to go down the more traditional route of procurement, in some ways, the fact that we've still had those conversations with them and that they've been open and engaged at that point isn't necessarily that detrimental because we know them really well. And so the solution that we then come up with in perhaps a more constrained procurement process is perhaps one that will align quite well with what they want. Customers sometimes don't know what they want. <laughs> so, and they will be contradictory. I had a client say to me um, towards the end of last year, we've been speaking with them for several years. We'd done a bid and, we, and we'd submitted it and, um, and we came to presentation and they said, uh, oh, we don't want a sales pitch. We don't want any salespeople in the meeting. We just want to speak with operational people. Great, absolutely fine. So we, we brought in the operational people. We had the conversation and then the feedback afterwards, oh, these guys are great, fantastic, really strong operators, really credible, but... When we're missing some of the sales pizzazz, where's all the sales pizzazz? (laughs) (laughs) So, Simon, you mentioned multiple engagement points, and I'd be interested in terms of sort of client C-level engagement as as an engagement point. Um, And you've mentioned you know, that we don't want salespeople in the room, we just want operational people in the room. But what's your perception of executive C-suite, what they want from a modern sales professional, which is kind of interesting, it might be not a sales professional. But By and large, the higher up any organisation you get, the easier the conversations become, I find. But maybe that's just me, maybe it's the industry that I work in. Um Yeah, by, by and large, no, they don't, they don't want, um, they don't want at some 
slick sales pitch. And I think I know what they mean by that. I think it's don't sell me something that I don't want. You know, don't come in here thinking you understand me and pitch me on something that I have no interest in. So, you know, the starting point, and I think this is true pretty much of every industry is just to get to know the customer that bit better not just the business itself but the individual and and what makes them tick so most people i've met in ceo positions quite financially astute they're quite sharp they're normally smart enough to bring smart people with them if they don't know something so legal people or financial people commercial people and what have you so you know they're smart at bringing good talent and putting them in front of you and really good ceos have total trust in that team they don't tend to get massively involved in the work that we do. I haven't met any CEO yet who really cares who does their cleaning. I've met plenty who will go, I really like such and such who does the cleaning, but none that really care who does it. That's not to say that they're disinterested, but their motivation is different. You know, their interest is with their stakeholders, their shareholders, the board of directors, the direction of the business, the latest financial numbers. And they're not going to be distracted by you coming along and going, oh, we've got this really interesting um, smart buildings technology that if we introduce it into your building, yeah, they're not going to be interested. So speaking with their subject matter experts, however, you will get more traction. And um, ultimately, of course, understanding the position of the people that you're speaking with in relation to the CEO is also very, very critical. So understanding who's going to ultimately make the decision and understanding what that governance process will look like for that client is incredibly important as well. In the private sector, the where we operate, it's, it's, very, it's a very mixed bag. Um, in the public sector, it's a little bit easier to understand in some ways because we're a strategic partner for government. So we have regular meetings with the cabinet office, as do a, a select number of other sort of major partners. Um, so the number of stakeholders to some extent is reduced. That's not to say the challenge isn't enormous, of course, particularly given what's going on in government at the moment and in the public sector generally. My, my perception of C-suite would be that where they engage, they're incredibly engaged. They're very smart at bringing experts in, but they, by and large in our industry, they tend to rely on their trusted advisors and supporters for a recommendation. Deals done on the golf course, they used to happen. Don't think they happen so much now. There's a lot of ethics stuff that we have to go through, a lot of forms that we have to fill out for obvious reasons about bribery and corruption and other things. And a CEO being dogmatic and saying, you must work with these guys is kind of rare. As a non-golf player, I have to admit to a certain amount of scepticism over the, the importance of business on the golf course. Just sounds like a really good excuse for a game of golf, but maybe I'm being overly sceptical. And in terms of uh, just looping back to, you know, we want operational people in the room, not your sales team, for example, as a situation, some sales professionals will be a little nervous of the deployment of non-sales colleagues within within the sales process because of, you know, they, they're worried they'll say something that's, that's commercially um, damaging or say the wrong thing at the wrong time. How do you, as a business, deploy non-sales colleagues, for want of a better expression? So we have a lot of operational colleagues, as you might imagine. I think we've got 95,000 employees globally, most of whom are, are frontline staff. You know, they're working directly on client site. We have quite a small back office, if you know what I mean. So the management function that sits above that. There's a number of ways we, we utilize them. Obviously, it depends largely on the clients that we're speaking with. So the individual client themselves, what floats their boat in terms of personality to some extent. Operators are 
in my experience, incredibly honest people. Honesty is great. I like honesty as a salesperson. I think if you put an honest person in front of a customer, it shines through. Where that honesty is is negative is is perhaps where they go, well, that won't work. This system won't work and that won't work. And they're very challenging and very difficult. Uh, we try and avoid that where we can by bringing our sales colleagues in as early as we can in the process, you know, so that they can build up a degree of relationship and understanding with our customers. But I would say, I say this genuinely hand on heart, as a salesperson, I've been involved in things and we've won billions of pounds worth of work over the years that I've been in sales. But I've never personally sold anything. It's been those operators that I've put in front of the customers. It's my job to corral them, if you like, to ensure that those personalities are matched, that there's a cultural fit, which then breeds a sort of discussion and then a relationship and then trust, which, um, you know, and when you think about it, if I'm in the final presentation and I'm the one doing most of the talking, I'm not the guy that's going to be delivering the service. So... To a degree, we have to let them speak and we need to get them up to a certain standard in terms of being able to do that. But my experience would be that most of them are very capable of doing that. Twisting it slightly on its head, I think it really helps if you work in sales and you've actually been operational. So for a brief period of time, I was a facilities manager and I did manage buildings on behalf of a client. In my case, I worked for Cisco Systems during the dot-com boom, which was very challenging. Things going up every five minutes, doors falling off, you know, chaos, basically. It was incredibly, uh, an incredible learning experience, I will say. I'm very glad that I'm on this side of the fence. It's the sort of job you take home with you, you know, you worry about, you stress about, or I did anyway. It's a really, really difficult job. But yeah, having those guys in the room, it lends enormous credibility to the things that we're saying. But we need to bring them in early. We need to ensure that they're engaged in that solution. It needs to be familiar to them so that when they're in front of the customer, we're not at odds. They're not saying one thing, but we've said something different in the bid. You know, we have to absolutely align. Certainly, I think a nervousness I have seen across a number of different industries is the client or the customer is is a little nervous or sceptical that the kind of the A team has turned up for the pitch. And then once the business has been won, then they're going to get the B team. And I think that introducing the people who will be working with your client at a very early stage really overcomes that concern. I think also adds a lot of richness to the process in, in many other ways as well. Yeah, I totally agree. One thing I love doing in our business is just introducing our sales execs really early. So go and speak to two, three of our team. You know, you have a skeptical client saying, well, how, how can you create meaningful, qualified opportunities for me? Well, just speak to some people doing the work. You know, it's, it's, it's all very well for me, the co-founder of the business, to be sort of selling you the dream of what's possible. But actually, go and speak to the team that, that do the everyday. I always have ultimate trust in the team just being themselves, and uh, that's always the steer. And uh, I think you said something there about honesty. You know, people warm to honesty, Simon. I think that's totally true. So don't try and be who you're not. Yeah, I mean, genuinely. And, and of course, the things that we're selling to some degree um, have real impact in these businesses, particularly in the public sector around social impact leveling up you know community engagement we've got to practice what we preach there was one particular client um just last year we brought um 10 of our graduates who are on our graduate program and put them in front of the customer the customer was blown away like why you're bringing these amazing inspiring young people what what made you think of that well because your demographic is changing and actually these guys are going to be your customers of the future and actually on learning from them and understanding from them putting them in front of the customer rather than some someone slightly older shall we say um is uh, is incredibly powerful you know it, it 
it, it speaks volumes about who we are as a business and what we want at the back end. We want long-term relationships. We want genuine partnerships. We want trust at all levels. Yeah, show us the whites of your eyes is, is a common enough phrase, but we do like to do that where we can, bring those people in. They really do help to shape an impression of the business, which, like I say, everything else will be the same. Price will be pretty similar. Quality submissions will be very similar in terms of bids, but those little things, those they will make all the difference at the end of the day. Yeah, it's that, it's that trust, which is, you know, simple little phrase, but very, very powerful concept. Normally, we get Richard to do his, uh, his pithy summary of some of your, your key points, the wisdom and expertise you've shared with us, Simon. So, so Richard. Yes. Well, uh, Simon, firstly, again, thanks for um, joining us on The Insiders. I- I'm always fascinated by the businesses that sit behind the scenes. No one ever said to me, you know, sales, the sales profession would be a great place for you to spend your time. And then when you start and get into the world of sales and you realize what an amazing opportunity it is for you and for your career, and then you start seeing that everybody needs to buy something and therefore are probably being sold it by someone. And next time I walk through the tube, which will be next week, then I'll uh, I'll be thinking of Equan. So firstly, love that. I think it's been a really interesting discussion, particularly around that sort of solution focus, which... Um, is very close to my heart, but you're in a very commoditized world. We, we all are, I guess, but you, you said, I think three to 4% is the sort of the highest um, market share of any of your competitors. So really highly commoditized, but, but your entire approach is the absolute opposite, which I, I think is, uh, is really interesting. You start by understanding your customer and, and their motivations. Those will change as different people get involved and you've therefore got to be on the board and, and putting your feet in, in their world and in their shoes at all times, I'd suggest, which is clearly a challenge. Disrupting and enabling. So, uh, you know, disrupting the norm and then enabling people to do things differently is a, an interesting place that we, we've spent some time on. We've talked also about customers not wanting the slick sales pitch and don't try and sell me what I don't want. You know, unfortunately, that is, you know, I, I was delivering a workshop to 40 or so people the other day, and I will start up by saying, what's the first word that comes to mind when you think of salespeople? I won't repeat what I heard, but that often comes from that exact phrase you mentioned, which is they try and sell me stuff that I don't frankly want. So, you know, don't waste my time. And then that led us to the, the last main topic, which I've just titled down here is it's a team pursuit. I totally agree with you when I see CVs of enterprise salespeople who said they won this account and it was four million pounds. Well, they didn't win it. It was uh, they were part of a winning team and the ability to bring your colleagues that that do the do the operational people, the people that are honestly able to talk about customer experiences. I think that adds huge value. So any of our listeners there thinking about how do I impress my prospects or my customers? Well, get the people that do the work in front of them, get the people to talk honestly about what they do, how they do it and why they do it. And uh, you build that trust that we've talked about and um, hopefully you build solutions that add value and and make a long-term difference. So those are some of the key thoughts, I think, Simon. Thank you, Richard, for that summary. And and Simon, just before we go, we've got a final question for you. We're building the Insiders Spotify playlist, and we ask uh, all of our guests to add a song to the playlist. It is a very random, diverse and eclectic mix across countless genres, including some quite niche ones. Uh, what what are you going to add to the playlist, Simon? Um, I'm going to add Space Oddity by David Bowie. Ah. Big Bowie fan and um, 
the song was written in the 60s, but it, I think it became a bigger hit in the UK in the 70s when I was a kid. And um, just a fabulous song. And, and I quite interesting and timely looking down on planet Earth, drifting off into space. There's something about that song that, that's always resonated with me. So I love that song. So um, I'd, I'd include that in the playlist. And actually, yes, to the to the shame of the Insider Spotify playlist, I think that is the first time uh, David Bowie has made an appearance. So it all fit well for sure. So so thank you for adding such a such a legend to the Spotify playlist. Uh, wonderful. So. Uh, thank you very much to Simon for joining us on this episode of The Insiders by Durham Lane. Uh, thank you to my co-host and thank you for listening in, folks. Uh, please subscribe to The Insiders podcast on your preferred podcasting site and you'll be notified of new episodes as they are released. And visit durhamlane.com to learn more about selling at a higher level. In the meantime, we'd just like to wish you good luck and good sales and marketing, folks. The Insiders by Durham Lane. Subscribe today to never miss an episode.